Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Justin Litwin today. We're at Woodhall Vineyard in Monroe. Uh, it's January 24th, 2024. Justin, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Uh, first question for you is why wine? Why wine? I think I, well, I feel like I just kind of stumbled into it. <laughs> so it was, uh, this wasn't my first career path. Uh, originally I was in the Navy and uh, I was on submarines and so when I was there, I was really thinking about uh, what I enjoyed in life and what I was looking for. And I was into home brewing and uh, being outside, but being on a submarine, you don't get to be outside very much. <laughs> so, uh, and that kind of led me down the path of looking at different degree options for when I got out. And uh, originally I was looking at fermentation sciences and then that kind of started leading me down the path of uh, looking at different options within the food science degree and then at Oregon State and then it's like, oh, they also have the horticulture side of the viticulture and enology program. And it's, it's like, oh, that's more classes outside and less math. Uh, so let's do that. And so that's kind of how I got into wine because before that I never even really drank wine or had no connection to it. And so then started doing that and even the first couple years in college, I wasn't that into wine. I was just like taking classes I enjoyed and I was like, this is great. And then uh, as soon as we got into the winemaking classes, that's when I really got into it because I started meeting more people in the, that were go also going into the industry or coming from the industry and getting to do tasting sessions with everybody and meeting this great group of people and uh, getting to experience wines from different regions and just learning a whole lot about the whole product and kind of the ethos of the industry, I guess, and the kind of people that occupied the space. And that's when I really, really started to enjoy my, my decision. And before that, it was kind of like, oh, is this what I want to do? And, but uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into wine. Snowballed into just getting opportunities and taking them and seeing where those led. And so it was, uh, it's like, oh, do you want to come work in the lab as a student position at the university working on applied viticulture with the uh, with Patty Skinkis, the state uh, viticulturalist. And uh, so then I went and did that and got getting more onto the viticulture side and then that kind of turned into this opportunity to get a master's degree and so went and uh, pursued that and did that and then just uh, kept chasing opportunities. Opportunities kept popping up and it's like, yeah, I'll go do that. And then that's kind of how I ended up here now. <laughs> all right, we'll come back and take you through all that. So you mentioned obviously life before all of this. So tell me about uh, where you were born and raised and kind of the, the path that led you into the Navy. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Astoria, Oregon. So on the very Northwestern tip, right at the mouth of the river and uh, my family there is really involved in the fishing industry and so like I worked in fish processing, my whole family worked in fish processing. So that's what I grew up doing, working on the river and uh, working around boats and 
kind of just, I didn't do too great in high school. So then it was like, well, I can't do this forever. And so what am I going to do next? And I was looking at different opportunities in the military and kind of settled on going into the Navy. And so I went and did that. And so I went from uh, the far west coast to the far east coast. So I was stationed in Connecticut and I was halfway between uh, Boston and New York. And that opened up a lot of different experiences for me to have. So got to spend time in the big cities and I was from a small town and got to do that and then figure out kind of where I wanted to be as long as figuring out, yeah, what I, what I wanted to do and what I enjoyed. Tell me about uh, life on submarines. <laughs> life on submarines was uh, challenging, fun, but it was really fun mo for most of the time. <laughs> um, so like when I, when I was in, we were operating, like on a submarine you operate on an 18 hour day instead of a 24 hour day when you're out to sea. So it's like, you're kind of always working. So it's like, you do six hours on watch and then you have six hours of off going and you have, that's when you do maintenance and other things. Cause I was a mechanic. And so it's like, we always had maintenance to do or things would come up and we got to go do that. And then you have six hours to sleep and then you just rinse and repeat. And then that was when you were out to sea. And then when you came into port, you were on like a three or four day schedule. So like every third or fourth day you had to stay overnight. So it's like, you don't get a lot of time off <laughs> or like, so you'd work your normal work week. And then like every, like two out of three weekends, you'd have to work. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, a, <laughs> you get pretty wrapped up into the whole life, but it's a really, it was a really nice, uh, camaraderie, sense of camaraderie because you live with your friends, you're working with them, you spend all, you go do things together. Like it's really like a family because you can kind of just do everything together. And so kind of, uh, and that's another thing that kind of has translated into my experience so far in the wine industry is like all my friends, like I work with my friends, I go do things with my friends. We don't live together, which, which is probably for the best, but. <laughs> Before we kind of move on to the next the next phase of things, uh, you mentioned this kind of the submarine life get kind of wrapped up in it. Uh, any particular interesting stories or, or memories from that time that stand out to you? Um, I don't know, lots of lots of different things, but uh, I, like we end up getting deployed to the Middle East, and when we were over there, we ended up getting in this huge accident. So like we got ran over by another ship, <laughs> and uh, so that was pretty interesting pretty wild time because then we had to pull in we were ended up being in Bahrain for two months and getting the ship ready to come back to the US and uh, so it was a pretty interesting experience to get to live in a different country for two months and like we're still working every day but we had lots of time off to go and explore and do different things and kind of immerse ourselves and so it was pretty fun and then uh, yeah other than that, just like all the times that we, I got to spend in New York going to different museums and going out and doing different, I don't know, all kinds of weird things. <laughs> so lots of, lots of fun experiences. You know, we used to go to hockey games all the time too in Boston. That was like one of our big, big activities in the wintertime. It's like, uh, let's all carpool to Boston, buy scalp tickets and <laughs> go to the hockey game, sit. We found out that the farther you sit back, the more fun you have, because that's where all the diehards are. <laughs> so, 
yeah. So those are some of the fun, fun things that we got to do. But lots of, uh, but then yeah, there's lots of challenges too, lots of breakdowns and. <laughs> so you mentioned you're, you're a mechanic, right? So you're constantly dealing with that kind of thing, I imagine. Yep, yep, so stuff would, stuff would always break. And I was a non-nuclear mechanic. So everything that didn't have to do with the reactor or the propulsion system, we had to deal with. And so there was only like maybe like a dozen of us and we had to do all the mechanical work for the boat that wasn't new, the reactor related. And so uh, it was quite, a, quite busy because <laughs> everybody else is like electricians or computer people and we we're just kind of the, the knuckle draggers is what they called us. <laughs> but, uh, but with that, it was, uh, you get to learn a lot and could uh, learn how to manage time and but also how to just power through jobs and mm -hmm. it's like uh, this has to get done otherwise we're not going out to sea and if that happens somebody's gonna be very angry mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's uh kind of just instills the spirit of working working hard to and working together to accomplish like big projects and then yeah, when we were after our accident, we went into the shipyard and we were there for two years. And since a lot of the components they had to shut down and replace were mechanical, like we were really busy. We were working with shipyard workers to take out whole systems in the boat. So gotta learn a lot there and how to learn how to work with different people and from different agencies and kind of how do their systems interact with our systems for like safety and project management and stuff like that. So coming out of that, you mentioned you were kind of thinking for, looking for things you wanted to do and, and, and found yourself. So why, why did you choose Oregon State? What was your kind of your initial, what did you think you would be doing with your life? Uh, well, I wasn't sure. And I kind of chose Oregon State because I'm from Oregon, but also they had a really good fermentation science program. And so that's how I was originally looking at Oregon State, and then, then I started exploring the different degree options and trying to figure out the best fit for me before I even started. So that was one thing about going to college a little bit later in life is like I already had a lot of ideas of what I enjoyed and what I was looking for in a career. So as you, as you got into the wine classes and started to kind of find, you mentioned kind of finding your cohort, finding your people there. Tell me about starting to learn about wine and what was exciting about it compared to other things you had learned and studied. The exciting thing about learning about wine was uh, just how different every wine is and the complexity behind it. And I guess now what I enjoy about making wine and kind of what led me down this path of wine versus beer is the more I learned about it, the more I learned it's like a uncontrollable, pro or it's like a control, it's like controlled chaos. So it's like with making beer, it's very calculated. You have a recipe, you're going in with, this is what we're doing and this is the end product. Whereas like wine, it's kind of, you get grapes and how do we avert disaster every day? <laughs> I mean, that's a oversimplification. Like, it's not disaster, but it's like, uh, how do we shepherd this product into where we want it to be? And that, uh, that idea of loss of control is kind of 
appealing to me, I guess. And so that's kind of, so then I, when I started learning more about wine, it's like, this is great. And uh, that, that's, what, that's what I found exciting about wine. And then, yeah, just learning about all the different cultivars and different winemaking styles and the things you can do to take a grape to the final product without actually, like you have an ingredient, grapes and yeast, and how do you use that along with techniques to achieve uh, your goal? Like, cause you're not, amend you're not making major amendments to like different compounds of the grape. Like you're not using, which is, I find very interesting. It's very fun, especially when you're making like wines from a single variety and then you add blending into it and it's like a whole different world. Because now your options of achieving your goal are really unbound, which is, which is quite freeing. It's pretty exciting. So you mentioned kind of uh, ch sort of chasing opportunities once you got here. So tell me about the decision to, to, to sort of to head to, into graduate school and what you wanted to accomplish with the master's degree. Yeah, so originally my plan was to, well, the opportunity of getting my master's kind of came up. And then it was like, oh, I wanted to kind of go work for extension because this idea of bridging the, gap, bridging the gap between research and the industry seemed really appealing in getting to uh, condense down the massive amounts of information that research is generating into digestible, inform like digestible information for people who are actually going to apply it mm -hmm. and use it. That, seemed, that was really appealing to me. But then uh, throughout grad school, I kind of became, I don't want to say disillusioned, but like the idea of going that direction further into academia kind of lost its luster. And uh, that's why like right now, I really enjoy my job now because I'm participating in research in the parts that I enjoy and not really having to uh, worry about the other issues with it, you know? So it's like, uh, don't have to write as much, don't have to do all these other minutia of the day to day. Like I just get to help people implement their plans. And then, yeah, so that's, that's, that was my kind of my mass, how I got into my master's program and kind of where that led me. What were you focusing on in the master's program? So I was focusing on uh, the, the effects of grapevine red blotch disease on Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. Because before that, there was a lot of uh, research, there was not a lot, but there was research on the effects of red blotch. But it was mostly like in California or other regions, and they have different cultivars. And so it's like, how, what are the actual, like, how is this impacting our industry? And I kind of started working on that when I was in an undergrad. And that's kind of how the opportunity to continue on into a master's program uh, progressed. And it was kind of a hot button issue at the time. I don't know if it still is, but it was, uh, everybody was kind of freaking out. And rightfully so, it was a kind of an unknown disease and the impacts of wine quality and fine health. And so, yeah. So what was next after after master's? Yeah, so after I wrapped up my master's, I took like six months off 
was, I could have probably went and got a job right away, but I was like, I don't really want to work for a while. <laughs> so uh, I hopped on my bicycle and I rode from Astoria to Yellowstone. It took me like a month and had someone pick me up there and drive me back and did that and painted houses and <laughs> kind of did random things. And, but I had a job lined up, so it was like I was going to go work harvest for uh, my friends, the Albans, and their winery, Six Peaks Winery. And so I was like, oh, I'll go work harvest for them. And that kind of turned into a craziness because it was 2020. And so like I sh the first day I show up at the winery, it's can't even see 10 feet because there's so much smoke. They're in Silverton, really close to the fires. And we're, uh, that was my first day. <laughs> it's like, all right. And then uh, did harvest with them. And that kind of just led to it was only going to be originally be a harvest job, and then I ended up staying on because they're taking out parts of their vineyard and replanting it. So then they're like, oh, well, we can keep, keep using help. So I kind of stayed on there and then worked through the entire next summer. And then uh, from there, I was like, well, maybe I want to get out and experience other wineries and kind of figure out where I fit into the wine industry and try some new things. And so then a they were creating a position at Great Oregon Wine Company for compliance management. And so I went over to there and took that position. And it was kind of, it was interesting because it was kind of a mix of working with vineyards and the winery and doing third party compliance. So it wasn't like TTB compliance. And so it was a lot of looking at like organic paperwork, uh, vegan, pesticide labeling, pesticide testing, and managing all these different things that the winery and vineyard were doing. Not really, man not, I wasn't telling the winemakers what to do, but it was like managing all of their, what they were doing, and how do we apply that to compliance. And so it was pretty interesting, a little soul crushing, but, <laughs> Uh, it was mostly soul crushing because you're just staring at labels and computers and I wasn't part of the active winemaking process anymore, which was, so yeah, so being strapped to a desk wasn't really my thing. <laughs> but so I did that and I got to learn a lot about different wine additives and different compliance paperwork and organic standards and how EU standards don't always translate to US standards because a lot of products come from the EU and people want to use them here, but what kind of documentation do you have to make your case when you're going to get things certified? And uh, so I got to learn a lot about that kind of stuff and how much compliance actually costs. And it was uh, really interesting, but learned a lot, but I was glad to leave. I love the people I worked with. They were great people, but the job itself was just a little bit too much for me. Too much indoors. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was one of the things I was trying to not do. Mm -hmm. And so as I was working there, then this position opened up here at Oregon State. And uh, this was a position I kind of never thought would open because it's kind of a one, there's only one person, I guess, to be the vineyard manager for Oregon State. And uh, the person who was here before me was here for a long time. And so it was 
kind of just happened to be all occurring at the like the right time. And I was like applied and came down and interviewed and was like, oh, this is kind of what I see the vineyard being and how we can move things forward. And uh, so it was really good. And so, and then when I got hired, it was also kind of a change in how the structure of the vineyard is, or like, uh, as far as like personnel wise. Mm -hmm. So like, cause the o OWRI, the Oregon Wine Research Institute kind of wanted more like they wanted to encourage more research here. And so when I started, they kind of p picked up the torch and like, we're gonna help fund this position. So we have a full-time vineyard manager there. And in doing that, like the OWRI faculty get to come here and they don't have to worry about fees. They know the place is gonna be taken care of. And so that way we kind of streamline and encourage research here. And I really enjoyed that. That was the direction they were going and knowing that they're making, not just the OWRI and the wine industry, but the college is making investments and everybody's kind of working together to keep this going and kind of encourage more use. Mm -hmm. And so and then I was, so I got the job and I was really happy to be a part of it. And now I'm here and working with the researchers to implement their goals and I'm trying to continue to make things better and how can we incorporate more students into the process of being here. And because I think that's gonna be an important part moving forward is how do we keep people interested in the wine industry? Mm -hmm. And how do we attract more students to Oregon State? Because uh, that's one thing that I feel like we're kind of lacking on is like, it's a very scientific approach to viticulture and enology and the hands-on aspect sometimes gets lost in the student engagement with our facilities and other personnel. And so how can we facilitate that? And so, and so yes, yeah, so like now, like we haven't had a student worker here for several years, like since I've worked here at least. And so we're, we just got done going through the hiring process of getting a student. So now we're gonna have a student worker here again and they'll be good. So, and then the food and fermentation club comes down and they, we donate fruit to their club so they can make club wines. And so it's uh, all these little things that I'm trying to like get more students to come down here and engage with what, we're, what, what we have going on. And so it's still a work in progress. There's still a lot, of, a lot of ways I can try to get more students down here, especially with like clubs. They have a lot more flexibility than the classes, like especially since we are so far away from campus. That's one of, the, one of the big challenges is how far away we are. And uh, yeah, so it's really, really good in that aspect. And then constantly figuring out where we can improve the vineyard and is the, is the other aspect of my position and kind of uh, how I wanna manage it versus how it was put in. Cause some of these blocks were put in, in the oldest blocks here were put in 1976. And so, and it's kind of like, how do we refresh these to make them more suitable to the way we manage the vineyard now? Because now we have mechanical leaf pulling and mechanical hedging and all these other things. And those were, vines weren't really planted with that in mind. And they're kind of getting to the point where they're, what was it, 50 years, almost 50 years old. And, uh, so how can we renew these into 
still vigorous in producing areas while kind of lowering the management time mm -hmm. from a hand aspect. And, but yeah, but then we also have new things going in all the time. And so like we have our new Chardonnay and Riesling blocks. And last year was the first year we got fruit off the Chardonnay. And it was, uh, turned out really good. We got it. And the, so that was its third leaf. And we ended up getting about a ton to the acre. And so it was really exciting. It's like, oh, we're starting to get more, more land coming online. And then it's like, uh, what's next? That's, I'm also trying to think, yeah, like not what's going on this year, but what's going on in five years. What are our needs going to be? Because we can't just slap in a vineyard and start doing things on it or like research on it. Because uh, you have this time lag of establishment, and plus we have the whole like land planning with our, our co like colleagues, and what do they want? And so it's kind of a long, drawn-out process. If they, if we want to put new things in, which we have a little bit more land we can do, but it's also these older blocks. And like what, what is the long-term plan for these, and how do we want to move forward? And it's really exciting. So you mentioned the original, the oldest blocks, 1976. Give me a, give me a little kind of like capsule of the history of the vineyard. How, how did it come to be Oregon State's vineyard, and what are kind of the what what has been kind of the the use of it up to now? So originally it was planted by Frank and Betty Baines, um, and Woodhull Woodhull. It's called actually called Woodhull Three Vineyards, and so the Baines family had is from like. Britain, and so they had estates there, like long, long history, right? And their estate there was like Woodhall Estate. And so they kind of kept that tradition alive, the, their long descendants, and mm -hmm. by naming their different places Woodhall. And so that's how this ended up being Woodhall Three Vineyards. And in the, so he managed it, and they had almost everything planted here. So it's like way more grapes were planted here before. And it's kind of interesting when you look at the old maps of what they actually had planted. It's like, wow, you guys were really living on the edge, <laughs> stuffing things into every nook and cranny. And, but uh, yeah, and so he managed it kind of like as a U-pick um, and selling fruit to home winemakers and things like that. And then in the 80s, so it was like 1986 was the first year that Oregon State had it. And the Baines is donated uh, the property, as well as a couple endowments to help support what was going on. And uh, so it started out with just a little bit here and a little bit there that we were operating, and he was still man. Frank was still managing the rest of it. And over time, OSU just kind of took more and more, and now it's. Uh, all OSU and it has been for quite a while and Frank and Betty are still here they're buried at the top of the hill we have a cemetery um, yeah and so it's kind of evolved and then originally the OSU was still doing UPIC and selling to small people and we've kind of just transitioned into more of a working with a industry collaborator to offload a lot of our, our excess fruit which has been really helpful and a lot, most, they've been really accommodating so far, which has been nice. So when, as, as Oregon State started to kind of take over more and more and, and, and kind of push, what, what, 
tell me about the sort of the research aspect of it, and what what point does it become more of a research vineyard, and what does that mean? What does it what does a research vineyard actually look like? <laughs> so, I don't know what the original research projects that they started in the '80s were, but they started eventually taking out blocks to put in designed blocks. Um, so, like, because in a research vineyard you have to have replication, whereas like you don't have to have in a normal vineyard because uh, for statistical analysis and to come to a results you have to replicate your trials and they were doing different things so they had a rootstock block to test out rootstocks and the first one was planted at the bottom and at some point that got taken out and then in 1990 the 1990s I think it was like 97 but I'm not totally sure uh, they planted another rootstock block, and so it's uh, was it like 18 different Pinot Noir rootstocks, um, and nine different, or so it's 18 different rootstocks on Pinot Noir, nine different rootstocks on Chardonnay, Merlot, and Pinot Gris, and so then that's replicated five times up the hill, and so we ended up with like an acre of this rootstock trial, so. And they were doing research on that when they were establishing it, and, and then recently in the last, well, when I was finishing my master's is kind of when they started moving back in here. And so uh, Dr. Skinkus has really kind of taken up the torch on looking at different rootstocks in established vines, because like the original trial was looking at it in a, like young vines, but now these vines are 20, 20 something years old and there's been a lot more interest in the, or there was a lot of interest in the industry about what do these look like long-term. And so uh, she's kind of been down here doing a lot more work and it's been really exciting. And uh, yeah, and then we also have like another like example of like a the way a research is different than like a, normal vineyard is we have like a trellis trial and spacing trial going on with the USDA. And so like they're looking at different spacings with vines and different trellis types and how these affect quality and I don't, I don't even know what else. <laughs> they're looking at a lot of different things and it's very, it's pretty exciting. And even like just from my perspective of like, cause I get to work, I get to work with it all the time and see like the way these different systems work. It's been pretty, pretty interesting to kind of figure out what, what I like and what they're trying to do. And like, I know I've definitely formed my opinions on the different trellis types in, in the vineyard. Like, oh, this is, this works and this doesn't work. But, uh, so yeah, and then we also are growing grapes for research wines because we're not just accommodating viticulture research, we're also accommodating the wine research. And so like the Riesling block we put in, they wanted an aromatic white to, to make wines out of for research wines. And so that's how the Riesling block got planted. And so there's lots of different components to a research vineyard. So for your role as a manager of a research vineyard, how does it differ from being a, a vineyard manager at, at a, at a non-research vineyard? What, what, is, what is different about your sort of day-to-day -day or week-to-week job? It's just a lot more coordination because what I might be doing in non-research areas, they might not want done in their plots. 
So it's a, kind of a lot of coordination of management tactics. Be like, oh, you want to do, like you don't want leaf pulling done in your trial or because I'm going to leaf pull to every, everything else. So. so it's kind of balancing what the researchers need, but also like since we are getting rid of the excess fruit to a commercial buyer, it's a lot of balancing quality and time and these different aspects of uh, that along. So it's kind of just adds another layer of complexity. But we are such a small vineyard that it's kind of, it makes it easier for me to kind of manage all these different things um, without a lot of help, which is nice, but. But yeah, so it's kind of a big balancing act. Most of the people, most of the research that we do here is, they want it under commercial conditions, though. So which that makes it pretty easy. It's like, I just do everything to this, to the whole vineyard. Um, but then it's also part of it is finding people who want to do re research. It's like how do we accommodate them space-wise? Because. Um, I don't know if this is last year, but like we've been having projects going on in every block. And so it's kind of spacing everybody out and kind of make, making sure everybody's needs are met space-wise without compromising other projects. Because we're also doing like smoke projects when they're coming down here and smoking out vines. And it's like, well, what? we got to fit you in here and we don't want to smoke out everything because they're doing things over there. And, um, so it's interesting and it's fun because I get to work with a lot of different researchers who are doing a lot of different things. And it kind of uh, keeps the mental juices flowing and thinking about how we're sol trying to solve different problems, not only in the vineyard, but in the winery. Because like the smoke project is, they're on the winery side and they're trying out different coatings. Like, oh, how can we kind of stop smoke compounds from getting into the grapes? But then they're also doing uncoated ones so they can be like, how do we fix this in the wine, or like what are some steps we can take in the winery to try to mitigate these damages. And so it's uh, pretty interesting getting to work with all these different people. And that's probably the biggest challenge is between, not challenge, but difference between a research, you know, commercial winery. Because uh, I'm not working with just like the winemaker who's like telling me what they want and how they want, how they want it. It's like a lot of different people. And, uh, but it's good. We've got a really good group of people who want to use the facility. So, so you mentioned kind of the, the, the role here as sort of a conduit between the research side and, and practical application side. So tell me about, from the industry side, what, are the, what is the industry asking of you or asking of the vineyard? And, and is there, do you have plans to sort of to make that, to, to, to expand that, to, to expand like what, what, the, what, the, what the industry can ask of you? So I, I don't know if I'm really a conduit between the industry and the researchers. I'm more of, the researchers are more of the conduit between me and the industry. Because like, so the industry kind of goes to, or like the researchers kind of get ideas from the industry on what are the needs. And then the researchers kind of come to me and it's like, how can we implement this into a meaningful trial? And, uh, do we have space to do it? And what are the what are the management aspects of this? And so it's kind of a weird. Like I don't 
the, the industry comes down here, like lately they've been coming down, like we've had one field day every summer for the researcher or for the industry to come down and kind of see things. And so they don't get a lot of idea, they don't have a lot of idea of what's going on here the rest of the time. They're kind of here to look at a project and see what's going on. But uh, I don't know if they fully realize the amount of research that we're generating out of this facility and kind of, there's kind of a disconnect between us and the rest of the industry, but we have a, yeah, we gotta work with some good people though. Everybody come, and usually when they, they do come down here, everybody has meaningful questions and researchers will be down here to help answer them and kind of guide them through their projects that they're working on. And so it's kind of, it's nice, but it's all, we're also kind of far away from the rest of the industry. Since uh, the bulk of the industry is in the North Willamette, we're here in the South Willamette. And so it's, uh, we kind of have our own little co cohort down here though, because we've got vineyards on both sides of us here and there's other vineries, wineries in the area. And, so it's kind of interesting, but uh, maybe someday we'll get more industry to or like get more, have more field days and more opportunities for people to come down and see what's going on. But you mentioned uh, bringing students back into the program here, or students back into the program here. So what is the what is the what will the student role be, and how do you kind of want to see that expand? So right now the student role, I'm kind of. I'm targeting it as like an opportunity for a student to come in and uh, gain as much knowledge as they want. Because it's, that's kind of what it, I, I got experienced is opportunities. I'm interested in like students who are, have an interest, but not necessarily like, like they're not determined. So it's like, how can we give opportunities to the people that are Maybe they didn't know this was a possibility. Or people who are going into the industry but don't have a lot of experience. How can we generate outcomes, good outcomes for people and get people inspired and start learning about, or like maybe new directions. They're like, oh, I didn't know you could go work. Like, I didn't know there was somebody that makes wine. Like, I didn't realize like, that was a degree job or somebody who manages, like grows wine grapes, like that's just a luxury crop. So it's like, these are, so these are jobs that are out there and a lot of people just don't think about it, I guess, and kind of bring a student on is how can we generate opportunities for not only like exposing more people to it, but generating opportunities and learning different aspects of it. And so I'm pretty excited about having a student come down and have them go through and just be part of the day-to-day -day operations and like, oh, we're gonna prune today because that's what we, we're doing every day. <laughs> or we gotta go and do uh, shoot thinning or, uh, oh, I need you to go mow. Have you run a tractor before? Here, drive, learn how to drive a tractor. And uh, so it's gonna, be, it's gonna be good. So uh, when, we, when we were talking before the interview started, you mentioned your own sort of personal wine project going on here. So it's obviously dabbling in some fermentation still. So tell me a little bit about, about that and about what you've, what you've uh, got going here. Yeah, so I'm a vineyard manager by or like a, on the vineyard side by training, and, but I've worked in wineries and I really enjoy making wine. And that's kind of uh, how I keep this project going. And so we've got a couple barrels 
of uh, different wines going right now from Dundee, or well, Chehalem Mountains is some of the fruit, and some of the fruits from here, and fruit from kind of different places. And uh, just kind of a way to keep, keep my fermentation hobby, well, my fermentation hobby is getting a little out of hand. <laughs> so it's, I don't know what to do with all this wine. And so, but I enjoy the winemaking process and I enjoy tasting it and thinking about it. And I'm still fairly young in my winemaking career. And so it's kind of, uh, how can I learn more about making wine? And luckily I've, almost all my friends are winemakers. So I get to probe their brains and be like, oh, what, what should I do? Or can you help me with this? Or can you give me some data on my wine so I know what's going on? And, it's really good or have them process it for me and help me out that way. And so they're, my friends are keeping my stoke alive because if I had to do everything by, by myself, it would be kind of a trudge because it's quite a bit of wine. But, uh, but yeah, so it's like right now I've got Pinot Noirs going and Chardonnay and Merlot and all kinds of weird, weird stuff and they're all different. So, but it's a good way to keep the, my spirits high and hopefully like the long-term plan is to continue thinking about it and how can I kind of be more creative with wine and uh, that's the long-term plan is figuring out new ways to push the envelopes and think about winemaking from a different direction and not just the traditional like this is what Pinot Noir is, and if somebody opens a bottle and it's not that, they're gonna be upset. Because it's for me, and so I can kind of do whatever I want. It's very freeing, and <laughs> who knows? I'm gonna get into kegging next, kegging wines, and that opens up a whole different possibility of doing, trying different conditionings, and I'm very excited about it. It's the long-term plan, and but right now it's still, a different, just trying out different techniques and making different styles of wines and it's really fun. Perfect thing to do at a research vineyard. You got research wine going on in, in here. Yeah, it's a, uh, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to occupy uh, the slower months. So, cause yeah, like once harvest happens, it's kind of like, well, what do I, what do I do now? We still have leaves on the vines and so it's kind of a good way to fill a little bit of time and get to uh, see what, what we're actually growing here and in the context of a finished product. And, but yeah, I just gotta stop being so lazy and uh, bottle some of this wine. So <laughs> that's the plan. That's, I gotta get this case of these pallet of bottles out of here, taking up too much space. But so with the vineyard, obviously you're still fairly new to the space. Tell me about uh, getting to know this vineyard and all, all the different things that are going on here, and about starting to plan out, as you mentioned, the kind of the one, five, ten year plan. Uh, how have you gotten to know the space, and what have you kind of thought about for next steps here? So yeah, getting to know the space has been pretty interesting. So I've been here through two growing seasons now, and done two harvests here and it's kind of figuring out the eccentricities of each little area because everything's different 
and uh, the way it likes to be managed and also just the different, because we have different trials going on with different things. So like some of it's spur pruned and some of it's, uh, most of it's cane pruned, but we have some areas that are spur pruned and it's interesting to see kind of like the differences between those and thinking about the ideas of how do I want to manage, like incorporate those into the future. It's like, which do I prefer? What is, what does the fruit look like? The fruit zones look like? What does the canopy look like? And so it's pretty interesting to think about it. And then also, yeah, getting to know the trellises and because they all have their little quirks because we have wood trellises, we have steel trellises, we got uh, hard wire for some, for in parts of it, we have soft wire in parts of it. So it's like all these different, because they were all put in at different times. And it was like an acre here, an acre there. And so, yeah, there's all these weird little quirks to it. And it's uh, fun to think about. But then I think, so like on the trellis side, it's like, well, how do we modernize the trellis? And because some of them are getting quite old and the wood posts are rotting out. And so it's like, well, we got to replace them anyways. And so like, what are we going to do next? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of thinking of uh, what's going to be the best option for us. And it's, that's where like the long-term planning comes in. Cause it's like, well, if we need to replace this whole trellis, does, are we going to still be doing research on this? Like, what's the time frame of the research that we're going to be doing? And is it worth to limp it along and wait till we just pull out the, pull that area out? Or do we invest the, invest in putting in a new trellis and kind of see what's going on? And so it's kind of, yeah, like this balancing act because we still got budgets to maintain and it's a, uh, kind of thinking about yeah the future and how can we what's the best use of our time and resources which is how probably most vineyards operate anyways so it's uh, we have a lot of the same challenges like in those aspects and especially with older vineyards and uh but yeah and so kind of the future is uh figuring out what's next and how to update things and get everything into a really solid steady state and uh, we're slowly getting there, but uh, there's still a lot of different projects that need to need to happen, and or at least be thought about, and uh, which is fun. But uh, then there's also like we have whole areas. It's like, well, do we want to plant more? And we got other things that need to come out. Like we have, like what's like an acre and a half of olives that have been abandoned. And like, well, I'm tired of dealing with them, so. Because <laughs> nobody's doing research on them, so it's, uh, they're kind of a pain because they put T-posts everywhere, so you can't mow, and there's giant blackberries, and it's like, well. It's kind of, uh, that's one of the things with some of, the, some of the research that goes on here. Sometimes, yeah, if some, like a project will get started, and next thing you know, there's, uh, you're left to deal with the aftermath. But that's all right. It's part of it. So let's talk about the Oregon wine industry a little bit. Uh, I'm curious about <clears throat> your initial impressions of it as you were getting to know it and getting getting into it. Uh, what did you sort of? What were your sort of initial impressions of of the wines here, of the people make, growing and making them, and uh, how have you seen things change in the time you've been associated with the industry? Yeah. So like. 
think my initial impression of uh, the Oregon wine industry is in the wines. I really enjoy the wines, Pinot Noir, and the, I kind of enjoy the light, acid, more acid-driven Pinots. And uh, luckily, there's lots of them to, out there. In the, but there's a lot of variety in the styles of Pinot that people are making, you know, so which is pretty interesting. But it, the, soul, the heavy reliance on Pinot is probably the biggest downfall, I think, about the Oregon wine industry is because you kind of go, you go out tasting and it's like, you'll go to a winery and they'll have six Pinots and one Chardonnay and it's like, well, that's not very exciting or gets a little, especially after you, you taste a lot of wines, you're like, uh, well, I'm ready for something else. <laughs> and there's a few wineries out there that are doing that and doing different things and getting fruit from Washington or Southern Oregon and kind of making different things. And so it's fun when you get, you can break it up with those. And that's kind of, uh, that's one of the fun things about kind of the Oregon wine industry. There's a lot of sense of tradition, but there's also this sense of creativity and exploring different areas, especially like uh, wineries that aren't tied to vineyards, like because they can kind of source fruit from different areas and explore different flavors and they can take their wine, their winemaking techniques that maybe they learned somewhere else and apply them to a different cultivar and it's you kind of get to experience different things, which, which is fun, you know, and, uh, but drinking six Pinots at a tasting is kind of boring. And that, have, that happens more often than it should, I think. But, uh, but yeah, but, that, and everybody, but everybody in the wine industry, Oregon has been super nice and it's a very collaborative environment. And uh, you get a, it's kind of amazing how people, like when they're having problems, they just call up their friends. It seems like everybody's friends with everybody else. <laughs> It's like, oh, I have this problem. You just say they just call somebody and be like, what are, you, what are you doing to kind of fix this? Or so they're like, yeah, everybody wants to uh, get advice, and most people are willing to give advice and give their inputs, and which is nice, and it's really fun. Everybody's really fun to hang out with too. So everybody brings wine. <laughs> What do you see happening in the industry in the coming years? You mentioned obviously kind of heavy reliance on Pinot Noir. Do you see that changing? Do you see other changes coming to the industry? I don't know. I don't know if I see Pinot Noir really going out, but I think uh, more cult I think more cultivars will come in, but I don't know if Pinot will ever be replaced as the dominant. But even with Pinot being the dominant, I think uh, there's a lot more room for creativity and kind of feel like with the amount of growth that the industry has, like there's room in the space for people to try different things, different expressions. And uh, I think it'll be really exciting once I start finding those people who are making those wines. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, but yeah, there's definitely lots of room and for other cultivars to move in and you know, we're already seeing the growth of Chardonnay in our industry and, 
you know, maybe someday we'll see six Chardonnays and one Pinot. No, probably not, but maybe, maybe we can get to at least like four and two, you know, but, uh, so it's good. I think we're moving in the right direction, but who knows, uh, where the future of the Oregon wine industry is, you know, because the way we're, the vines are established and our vineyards and things like that with climate change and a lot of dry farming and lack of water rights and there's going to be a big shift in how vineyards are managed and how do we manage water, groundwater, and it's, which can lead to different possibilities as, uh, how do we adapt and overcome and still keep our quality and making wines is just part of it and growing grapes is just part of it. And so it's how do we adapt our vineyards to what's, what's coming and then how do we adapt our wines to that? And so it'll be interesting and it's going to be, I want to say exciting because nobody wants, but it might be exciting because it might force change. So the role of a, of a place like this and that, obviously you're gonna be, this is gonna be a place where people are, are researching for things like smoke, as you mentioned, obviously based off of 2020's experience, things like diseases that are coming. Are there other things in, on the horizon that you see this vineyard space and you being used for as the industry is looking at sort of the, some of those challenges? I mean, yeah, probably we'll be, we'll probably be implementing a lot more things for the future. I mean, it's already kind of started with like the renewed interest in rootstocks and how those are expressing into these vines that are 20 something years old and the smoke trials and the different trellis trials, you know, how can we optimize efficiencies and with the amount of labor that we have and how do we manage vineyards in a way to coincide with our labor need versus our mechanical abilities and I kind of think that's going to be the way we're going is also maybe we'll probably start exploring maybe we'll start exploring uh, different cultivars and so but it'll be it'll be exciting I don't know what they have planned they just I'm far down the line <laughs> they tell me what they want so uh, it'll be good it'll be I'm sure we'll be trying new things and uh, continue exploring what's going on. And I know there's interest in like different ground trials and how they affect grapevine growth and you know, like uh, different cover crops and even different grasses. Do the different grasses have different impacts? And there was in, there's been interest in doing some of those trials down here with that. And, but it's also how do we convince people to, to come down here and be a part of that? But and it'll be interesting. We haven't ha we haven't seen a lot of interest in uh, like uh, efficiencies in like uh, different management programs. So like, what is the differences between like, and maybe other people have already done this, and that's why they don't feel. It, but like differences between like organic and like conventional management tactics or hybrid tactics, and there could be methods, there could be areas there to explore and this will be interesting. But, uh, cause right now we kind of just managed to, uh, 
minimize disease because we don't want to impact the trials in any way. And so we have a pretty uh, direct approach and it's like, well, that's why we have, a, we have a big problem with turkeys and we can't have turkeys in there impacting the results of our trials. <laughs> and so, it's, uh, so some things are a challenge to implement here, but. So you talked earlier about your kind of personal long-term plan when it comes to winemaking and, and, and that. So I'm curious about other sort of future plans for yourself, uh, goals on the horizon or other things you want to take tag, tackle in the near future. Yeah, I'm, I don't know, I'm pretty happy where I'm at. I enjoy the or I enjoy getting to work with researchers and also like growing grapes and I tell everybody I have the best job in the world. I'm a farmer with a pension, but but uh, but yeah, I still I still see aspects for me to grow and you know like short to long term is hopefully start my own label. But I, only, I don't want it to be my full, my day job. So it's like maybe if I can make 200 cases a year, and because uh, I'm not interested in selling wine, I'm interested in making wine. And uh, but I'm not interested in drinking 40 cases of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a how do I balance all these things that I enjoy and without having to sacrifice anything, but. You always got to sacrifice something, so. Yeah, so that's kind of the idea, but who knows? All right, that's all the questions that I have for you today. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have or anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to cover here today? Not that I can think of. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your stories with us uh, on this uh, now dry, for the moment day here in, in, in Woodhall Vineyard. Appreciate your time. We'll let you off the hook. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.